Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Our next guest is a music industry titan in Los Angeles with a passion that now lies in ensuring hospital patients are well informed about medical procedural costs and effectively managing the resulting exorbitant bills despite having health insurance. I am blessed to introduce you to Steve Korn. Steve is a music industry veteran who started as a pre-med student at Cornell University, but discovered his passion for music and songwriting. And then, after a long career that began with studying at Berklee College of Music and led to a career in film scoring and working in music licensing and production, eventually becoming the head of music at Live Entertainment, Steve's life changed in the blink of an eye when his son was born with a rare medical diagnosis and he found himself in the world of trauma and patient advocacy. Steve founded Medis Advocacy, a company designed to assist and advocate for those dealing with the medical and insurance industry issues where he serves as the CEO, while also remaining CEO of BFM Jazz and Viewpoint Consulting Services and Steve still manages to teach digital music courses. With 20 years of patient advocacy experience, Steve Korn aims to provide better support, guidance, and assistance in managing healthcare decisions, cost insurance claims, and billing disputes. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Louise. Great to be here. It is great to see you and hear you. You know, here we are on Blink of an Eye talking about trauma and bringing on guests with trauma experience and expertise. Might we begin with getting a sense of who Steve Korn is? What's the essence of Steve Korn? Well, that's a very deep question, and I hope we have sufficient time to cover that. Yeah, I was thinking about this, and... After I sold my digital distribution company, I met with a, a very successful music executive who asked me, what do I do? 
you know, and that's a question I try not to ask at cocktail parties because we don't want to define ourselves by what we do. At that lunch, I realized what I do. And what I do, I told him this, is I solve problems. I have always had a strong desire to solve problems. Maybe you call me the fixer or whatever, you know, however you want to, you know, couch that. I feel just always a strong desire to help people. And in my music company, BFM Digital, it was all about helping the indie musician and label navigate the path from analog to digital and offer them guidance and help them take advantage of a new revenue stream. In my patient advocacy, it's even more passionate. We all know how expensive medical bills can be. And I read a study years ago that said 50% of all medical bills have a mistake on them. Mm. You just have to find them. <laughs> and I find myself in service of people in general. My wife complains I give free advice too often. It's just who I am. You know, I want to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that desire to help people and also what you mentioned about medical bills having oftentimes 50% of them having errors in them. So much of trauma is this experience of overwhelm. And I'm wondering how it is as a patient advocate, uh, you might address this issue of overwhelm and as it relates to what it is that you're doing now with Metis Advocacy. Yeah, that's a really good point to make. I've had a lot of different types of clients, right? And one of the biggest problems in the health scare industry, as I call it, not the health care, but the health scare industry, is a lack of medical literacy right, in understanding the terminology and the lexicon. And my last client was a very intelligent defense attorney and absolutely capable of understanding this if she could spend the time and learn. She had medical issues for herself, her husband, her two kids, and her work. And all that is just simply overwhelming for a person, you know, how to manage all of this. And a lot of what I do is relieve the burden of worrying about the medical bills and taking one less, you know, brick off their shoulder because most of my clients have a lot to deal with. Some of my clients are really not well-versed in the insurance industry. I can offer assistance there, but the, the commonality of all my clients is being overwhelmed. Yeah, I think it's something so important for anyone offering a service to a person or a family in crisis to recognize that, as you have explained with one of your clients who's an attorney, that no matter how well-educated or well-spoken or well-traveled or life-experienced any of us is as a human being, when we are thrown into a medical crisis, any crisis, our body, our brains are trying to protect us, giving us this natural flood of chemicals that throws us into overwhelm. Right. So that we can like numb out or be very hyper-focused. And even just making informed medical decisions, putting the medical billing aside, you're in a, this heightened stress and anxiety and you know, I always think it's kind of ironic, if that's the right word to use, 
that a doctor will present, you know, five options and then ask you, you know, what do you want to do? And that's like a mechanic. You bring a car to a mechanic and it's running rough. And he says, well, there's five things we could do. Which one do you want me to do? And you're thinking, well, you're the expert, right? (laughs) You tell me. And so even though the patient has to make that final decision, they have to be fully informed. And usually you're not in a situation where you can even absorb the information. Precisely. We know this so well in our work of 30 years as mediators. And people will say, well, how are we to make our own decisions? And in the old days, we'd say, well, we're going to help you by we'll provide you with information that you need or find out those where you can get the information from, et cetera. And they'd be like, no, but how, how are we going to make these informed decisions? You know, my life's upside down. This is a crazy show. Yeah. And realizing, you know, early, early on how we needed to much more fully understand the experience of high conflict and trauma, because no matter how well informed the information is, it's very difficult to receive it and take it in. I have this visual image, metaphor, if you will. I used this when my son was born and I was trying to explain to people how day to day, how I was doing, you know, because people always say, you know, how are you doing? Right. And what they really don't want to hear is a 10 minute summary of really how you're doing. The image that I created was, you know how, when you have a glass of water, I'm pulling out my glass right here and you fill it all the way to the top, but you can go a little bit above it because the surface tension of the water creates what's called a meniscus. So it rises ever so slightly above the lip of the glass. I would say, this is my life right now. And if I have one drop more of stress, it's going to overflow. That's how I describe reacting to trauma, my original reactions to trauma. I think I'm much more Zen-like now than I was 25 years ago. Well, might we actually go back because our listeners probably don't know your story about your son, John, and about 25 years ago when just that one extra drop would have just put you over the edge. Can we talk about your personal journey with your son? Sure. And I want to say that my son has given me permission to talk. You know, he's an adult and we do have to respect his wishes and his privacy but he's graciously allowed me to talk about his situation. Mm. So I'm grateful because I think it can be very helpful to a lot of people Mm -hmm. to appreciate his daily struggles and then those of his family. Where do you want to start? So John is my third child, right? My first two children born, no problems. I'm not saying that I didn't have problems with them as they grew up, but yeah, uneventful births, right? Uh, nine weeks before John was due, my wife and I sensed that something was amiss and she couldn't feel the baby kicking. That was like on a Saturday before he was born on a Saturday. We didn't think much about it. And the doctors just said, anytime you want to come in, you could put a fetal heart monitor on and just make sure that, that everything's okay. And that was working. And, and on the day that we were about to buy our house, uh, we were going to go to the hospital and just have the monitor put on. But lo and behold, there was a problem. So he was born two months early. We didn't even know if he had a fully developed cortex, but he does. 
And he's a brilliant kid. He's a brilliant man, I should say. And he's in law school right now. He's very smart. So there was no concern about that. But you didn't know that then. No. And actually, there was a risk of oxygen deprivation in utero that we wouldn't know until, you know, a child develops a little bit further if, if it causes any type of cognitive issues, right? Mm. Um, and, but he was born two months premature. He was born with a, a litany of symptoms and it wasn't just premature. He had other issues as well. And he was in the neonatal intensive care for a hundred days. Um, and it was very traumatic having to scrub up every time we wanted to visit him to kind of take the story and make it a little bit shorter is that he got diagnosed with an extremely rare version of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Now, Ehlers-Danlos has been in the popular media for the last few years with artists and musicians saying they have EDS. What they have is a form called hypermobility, which is loose joints, dislocations, and fatigue. John's version is called dermatosporaxis. All EDS are a form of collagen disorder. But John's particular type, there's only 15 people in the world that has this type. Mm, mm. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say there's only 15 diagnosed cases. We've actually learned that the genetic mutation that causes it is called autosomal recessive, which means my wife and I both had the mutation and we both had to pass it down at the same mm. time. So mm. my other two children um, are being tested for being a carrier, but they don't have the syndrome. It actually traces back to being Ashkenazi Jew in, the, mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe. They're able to locate that, which is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so he has this condition that creates extremely fragile skin. Mere friction can tear open his skin. His skin has very, it's very loose. You know, think about a Sharpay. You know, how you can lift the skin on, on a Sharpay and it just seems to like expand. Well. You can't do that with John, but his skin tension is similar to that in that it's very loose. And that creates a lot of other problems, circulatory problems, because you need skin tension to help with your lymphatic system, with your blood system, your circulatory system. It affects the connections with ligaments and tendons. I think of um, a number of elder people yeah. who have perhaps something it certainly wouldn't be EDS, but this quality of very, very fragile skin. The skin deteriorates with age. And I used to say to practitioners, treat John like he's a, a very elderly patient with paper thin skin. Turns out that was bad advice mm. because John's skin is different than an elder's skin. So he has had many serious injuries. What's the difference in the quality of his skin and the skin of an elder person? His skin is soft, right? It's not brittle. It's not paper thin. It's still supple. You're right. It's not paper thin. It's supple. You know, he can do something like, you know, lift up a little bit of his skin without causing it to tear. It probably would bruise because if you think about it, the capillaries that are just under the skin are protected by the skin strength. They're held together. Whereas his capillaries can get easily bruised. You know, it's kind of like, you know, my wife's a redhead and she bruises easily. Many redheads do that. Just multiply that times 10 or 100. But the big difference is friction can cause a skin tear. 
And what I developed for him, this is one of the management skills that I gave to him. You're like a byproduct of what you were learning, a management skill. Mm -hmm. He's had many surgeries and every surgery comes with risks of additional trauma. And he had a surgery that required the doctor to shift him on his side. And the pressure of doing that caused a skin tear that looked like a scalpel had cut his skin. So it just sheared and it was about four inches long. And the surgery was a success and that healed pretty well. It heals, but it's now on his back. It required serious wound care. This is a very similar to the life of a quadriplegic. Yes. And John had an accident. I want to say it's nine years ago. It was trick-or-treating, which I wouldn't, I almost didn't let him go because it's dangerous for him. And he had a really bad accident. He broke both hands and one foot and he was in bed and he, he couldn't even like, you know, adjust himself. So he wasn't a quadriplegic, but he did have the same risks for bed sores. And in fact, he mm-hmm. did get them mm-hmm. on his buttocks and his back. Mm-hmm. He used to get a lot of these sores on his scapula, his shoulder blades, because the skin was so thin there and saggy. Yeah, it's like a bed sore that requires, I'm sure you know the care for a bed sore. Yeah, absolutely. And friction is, is oftentimes the uh, culprit. The curing process is insidious because it takes a lot of care. It can take a long time to heal. A long time. And it, it has serious ramifications, blood, sepsis. There is, when he's had serious injuries, there has been a very similar need, response need, care need. But even day to day, he has to be careful about his shoulder blades and his buttocks. He has cushions and he stands, you know, he's become aware of what he needs to do and still not a perfect situation. But the awareness is key. And I, I know we want to follow this up with the story with John and and where you are. I do want to just interject this one piece that for anyone, as it relates to trauma in the medical world, these secondary issues that can come about. And I think of ones that our family experienced would be with uh, nurses as well-intended as they were many, many, uh, but some being very careless in moving a bed sheet or a strap from a harness just to pull it out from underneath the body in the way that it could be easily pulled out from underneath you or me and cause a lesion that was a long lesion that leads to a bed sore within about two days and then months and months of recovery. I sent you the brochure I created for John. At first, I just had a sheet of paper that said, this is EDS, John's EDS. These are the risks. And I found that in the hospitals, often is the case that the the nurses don't want to read it. Then I started taping it to the bed and above the bed. I wanted to put I thought it was brilliant. I wanted to put it on the outside of the door, but that violated uh, HIPAA guidelines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but truly, ironically, just as a matter of the patient can say, no, I can say. Right. And, but then I realized words don't do it. So I made that brochure with pictures showing the injuries that he's received under care at a hospital. And like when he was intubated once and the holding his cheeks and his chin caused a massive bruise like this. 
it's now at the point where he's taken over what I've done because he's an adult. Your patient advocacy on his behalf that came with pictures included. Mm-hmm. And doctors and nurses don't appreciate that usually that a patient knows their body better than they do. So there's been a couple instances where he's had a surgery or he's been hospitalized. And I will say, no one touches John until you read this. And it's just one and a half pages, right? And one of the best experiences I had along those lines was at George Washington Hospital a couple of years ago. He was interning here and he tripped and fell on a wire in my brother's office and serious injury. I actually got to his hospital room from LA faster than he got there from the ER. <laughs> and, wow. and, and I said to the, the nurse, I said, here you go. I have this printout. John has it laminated in color. And I said, no one touches him until you read this. Not the nurse's aide, not the nurses, not the phlebotomist, no one. And she stopped and she read it. And then she turned to the nurse's assistant and said, read this, please. And then she made sure every shift change read it. Yes, beautiful. And that's a rare occasion, I have to say. And for anyone listening in who is in the healthcare industry, to know the power of that relational response to the patient, to receive it and to realize the significance and magnitude of it, and then to really demand that others listen as well out of respect, but also out of Well, I think that's a really key point, you know, learning about relational mediation and just the practice of that in day-to-day life. The desire to be understood and heard is is so critical to our well-being. But in the healthcare industry, the professionals are trained to, you know, just react. And they've done something a thousand times, but the thousand and first time they need to do something differently. It's a gargantuan effort. So in this injury that John had, and this was just, he tripped and fell, right? You know, anybody else would have dusted themselves off and moved on with their life. Maybe they might've sprained a hand or something, but you know, hardly anything. It took many months to recover from that, but he had this laceration on his foot. My brother was helping him, but John, when he has lacerations, he needs to be stitched by a plastic surgeon because his skin is like stitching tissue paper. His old plastic surgeon used to say, there are a suture recommendation and a stitch recommendation. Mattress stitching is the recommended stitching. If you, know, you may not know that, they wanted a, a physician's assistant to stitch up his foot because with anybody else, you know, you could just stitch it. Also, another gargantuan effort by John to convince them, no, I need a plastic surgeon to stitch me. Mm-hmm. And they had to bring someone in on call. And, you know, my brother supported John in this, um, and they were unified. Yes. You're not having anyone lesser than a plastic surgeon stitch up this foot. Just pausing on that for John and anyone else who's been in the experience of needing to advocate for themselves, even if it means halting all the protocols in the ER or in the hospital to get the right person to do the job. Exactly. We had to fire. Um, an anesthesiologist, John was going in for surgery and this guy wasn't listening to us. John was younger, so he wasn't self-advocating just yet. He almost clocked John with the light that was swinging over and we told him we, we need someone else. See, John's situation is 
like DEFCON level three. It's similar to a hemophiliac in some degree, except that the injuries that a hemophiliac has aren't protracted. They could be life-threatening, but they don't take months and months to heal. And one of the trickiest things about advocacy with, with a relative, with my son, is the passing of the baton. There's a point where John was like, I got this, dad. And I would say, no, you don't. But it's enabling someone. Or, or wanting to say, yes, you do, but standing in the wings. That's kind of how it worked. And it's like, okay, John, go. And then I would fill in the gap. But to say to him, go, was violating every DNA in my body. (laughs) (laughs) We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. When you're advocating for someone on a health issue, you can't deny their independence. Yeah, their efficacy. And that's part of my training as a patient advocate is to always respect the independence of the patient, the client. And if they don't want to do something, you might be able to say, well, here are your options, but you do not make decisions for them, right? Now, when John was under 18, I made decisions for him. When he was over 18, it was mutual. It was similar for us too, although I remember the day Archer turned 18 and we were still in, in hospitals and it was to have him sign the power of attorney. Of course, he couldn't sign, but just any kind of mark as we put a pen kind of in his hand just to scribble, just to do something as we moved his shoulders around to give that ability to the parents. But it was always, we hoped at least, still a joint effort. You know, I think too, Steve, 
as we move into really how with this experience with John, you became the patient advocate. I do remember how important it was to always in a significant medical injury uh, or disease or diagnosis that is truly life encompassing and life altering to have another set of eyes and ears. I do remember particularly different medical errors that we encountered, but one that very much related to what you said about the right people. There was a nurse and I, again, you know, she was just in a hurry and she is, has the pressure of, you know, the insurance industry on her back and the number of patients whom she had to see, I'm sure. But she tripped over one of the chest tubes that was inserted literally like a garden hose into Archer's, the sides of his chest walls. I like almost draconian in this very old way of doing medicine just to try and drain the lungs moving through the walls. And she tripped over it. And I said, oh, my Lord. I said, that's Archer because of the rip that it could have done to his body as well. And she said, oh, don't worry. He doesn't feel it. Oh, yeah. That was one of the very first times in the early days when I realized I know what I need to know as an advocate to be able to say when someone needs to be removed from the team. Well, that reminds me of a story. So John is my third child and the first two children, we had like the rock star of pediatricians in the San Fernando Valley in LA. They were a team of brothers, of two brothers, and their father was a well-regarded pediatrician. It was right across from the hospital where the kids were born. And so we'd been taking our two daughters to this practice, not extremely well run, like overbooked kind of practice. And then John is born and John had a lot of trouble getting nutrition. He couldn't do it orally. So he had a, a nasal tube. At first, we had to feed him. It's called bolus feeding, maybe. Yeah. So yes, you just hold it up and you well. let it drip down. Mm-hmm. If he took an ounce, it was like, wow, that's fantastic. We had to feed him every 45 minutes. Now, at that point, we didn't have a portable pump to be able to do this. So we made an appointment for John. They knew that John was coming in and they knew he had special needs. And we're still learning what those were at the time. Yes. And we made an appointment. We said, we need to be seen at this moment because then we have to get him back to be fed. I think we had him on a pump, not a bulbous, but we had him on a pump, but the pump wasn't mobile. So we had to get him back home to pump him. And we got there and we waited and we waited. And about 40 minutes later, we were, you know, we moved from the big waiting room to the, examination room just to wait some more. And then finally the doctor came in and I said, sorry, we have to go. He needs his feeding. The doctor said, well, you know, we're busy. I said, yeah, well, obviously you can't handle a special needs child here. A child that has the flu or tonsillitis, fine. But your practice is not equipped to handle someone like John. We got a referral for a pediatrician that was much closer to our house. I want to give her a shout out if that's okay. Because she was fantastic, Dr. Catherine Stiles. And her whole practice was great. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Stiles, and all the other amazing physicians and nurses and medical personnel out there. We interviewed her first, 
And we told her the information because John had been diagnosed by this point. She said the most beautiful thing. She goes, obviously, you know, I've never had a patient like John because at that time there was only nine cases in the world. Right. But she said, I don't know much about, this was called type 7C EDS, but I promise you I'm going to learn everything I can. She made it possible for the other doctors in her practice to learn about John. Now they weren't the experts like Dr. Stiles was, but they all made the effort. Yes, the effort is what is so relational and so powerful. And just even the words, I care enough about you. I don't understand this right now, but I'm going to learn with you. But you see the commonality between your experiences and mine, the good experiences, is that these providers were willing to listen to the patient or their parent. They weren't imposing their set of values or experiences on an unusual situation. And I would imagine so many listeners listening in are sharing similar experiences that you and we have had, even with very different kinds of medical injuries or medical diagnoses. It's the quality of the interaction. This experience with John was ongoing, obviously. And as a result, I gained a lot of the knowledge and experience about the financial side of the insurance industry or the healthcare system. Again, I had a a music distribution company that I sold in 2014. And I really had a desire to, I was pre-med at Cornell, as you mentioned, I had a desire to do something in the healthcare system. And not only was John an inspiration, but there were three events that happened within a month that spoke of patient advocacy. And then I discovered that there's this world of independent patient advocacy out there. And there's coursework, certificates to be, and then there was a board certification. And I actually, being the entrepreneur I am, I wanted to start a virtual patient advocacy company. Hey, yeah. I mean, if you pivoted from analog to digital back in the day in the music industry, you could pivot in the patient advocacy sphere as well. It was kind of like, offering legal Zoom for legal services, I wanted to offer virtual patient advocacy services. And I started building it using a lot of the proceeds from my sale. And then I had trouble with my developer. That has never happened to anyone, right? Uh, (laughs) And and then the business model, which I had cooked up with a really good friend of mine who's a CFO in the healthcare industry. I was testing it and it just wasn't going to fly. So I just put a halt on it. And I decided I'm just going to be an individual practitioner for the time being. And that was four years ago (laughs) or five years Mm -hmm. ago, actually. And what's it look like now? I still have ambition of building the practice. I have access to a lot of other patient advocates. Most of them are part-timers. I do want to focus on the financial aspect. There are some patient advocates that do just navigation. They help you navigate through doctors and hospitals and some that do just research. If you have a certain type, there's one that specializes in breast cancer, or there's another one that specializes in prostate cancer. And I find those are very important, right? But after all my years of business, I developed negotiating skills that are, I found were completely transferable to the healthcare world, right? So actually the music industry, I used to joke about this, that I went from one dysfunctional industry to another. And my very first conference, health-related conference, was this biotech conference at Stanford. I went there, just kind of opened my eyes. And the first day, I hid the fact that I come from the music industry because everybody had multiple 
health related degrees. I mean, like, like, like six letters after their name. And on the second day, I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. And when I started telling people about this, it's really funny. <laughs> Everyone in the healthcare industry said, why are you leaving the music industry to do this? But everyone in the music industry said, that's fantastic that you're doing this. <laughs> and I, I haven't been able to obviously leave the music industry completely behind, but that is my goal. That's my desire. I want to build a practice in advocacy and mediation, uh, find a way to combine both and move entirely into that field. Well, that really kind of brings us in with how it is that Metis Advantage um, and advocacy works, but also with what it is that we're creating with the Blink of an Eye nonprofit, where we're filling that gap. And you have come saying you'll be part of this wraparound team on patient advocacy, the gap being to support families in trauma and crisis, not just with the medical and the financial which is a huge piece of it, and the insurance, which I'd really like to uh, get your wisdom on here in a moment, but the emotional and the family systems pieces. Yeah, one thing that amazed me when John was born, and for two days, we didn't know if he was going to survive. That was a very scary time. Mm-hmm. But one thing that amazed me is how all of a sudden I knew people with children that had a severe either birth defect or trauma or injury. And my then ex-boss and his wife, she got chicken pox when she was pregnant and she had twins. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous. The boy was born physically normal, but he had some learning cognitive issues. The daughter was born with missing a half of an arm, a half of a leg and one eye that was barely functional and then she lost her function. Mm -hmm. And I knew that. But when your son is born with major trauma, it seemed like I knew so many people that were experiencing some form of trauma that was analogous, if not identical, but not really identical, but it's not very similar, analogous. It was amazing to me, not just helpful, how necessary that was to help me get through that, let's say that first week. Yes, that you knew that there were others. Yeah who have like been there, done this, because the human experience with trauma uh, is so similar. Right. So even though I don't have a experience with, direct experience with a spinal cord injury, as I mentioned in one of our calls last week or this week, the doctor in the neonatal ICU, there was one doctor who was a paraplegic and he suffered that paralysis in high school playing football. And then he went on to become an amazing pediatrician. And then the geneticist they brought in to try and diagnose John, because it took three months to diagnose him. They had a suspicion, but that fellow was a quadriplegic. Yes, amazing. (laughs) The paraplegic doctor, who I think his name was Jim, but I, I still have to try and find that information, said an amazing statistic. He said, you know, one thing that's a blessing here is that we can see the symptoms and work with it because one third of all babies are born with an invisible problem. Powerful, powerful statistic, powerful statement. And I can say that my middle daughter had an undiagnosed learning disability for so many years. It was a great relief to identify. And most of the other patients that have had dermatosporaxis, John's condition, well, actually, let me just back up. So John was the first such patient to have a genetic test. 
But when he was confirmed, it wasn't genetic. It was an electron microscopy and an enzyme test. But nowadays, there's a genetic test for it. <laughs> but the very first patient, who I think is now in her 30s, went undiagnosed till she was, I think, 14. <laughs> and so we had the benefit of getting a very early diagnosis. I think at the time, John was the youngest patient to be diagnosed, like three months, three and a half months or something like that. You know, Steve, just pausing on that for all of the folks in the world who suffer with some type of condition, the way that they are also helping to pave in science and in medicine and in understanding and even in our world of responding with all of that scientific background, but through a trauma-informed lens, they are helping. Their lives are so valuable in so many respects. And that is certainly one. Yes. You pay it backwards and you pay it forwards. You pay it backwards and you pay it forwards. There's a woman who is, I want to say like eight or nine years older than John that has the same condition. and we were introduced to her by permission by the geneticist that was dying, not the fellow I mentioned, but the, this fellow has a, a lab who researches collagen-based diseases at, at University of Washington. He introduced us to this family. And I think she was seven years older and John was still an infant. And I didn't want to hear what her parents were going through. It felt too traumatic. I didn't want to see a window into the future. And looking back, I could say that Every person that has John's condition has a unique expression of it. There's a similarity, right? But we finally met this woman in Boston and she wound up living on her own. She got two master's degrees. She traveled through Europe, but she's had major, major problems, perhaps even worse than John. But she exposed to us the type of bandaging that she does. Mm. And it's called Mepilex. Are you familiar with Mepilex? I am familiar with Mepilex. Yeah, I kind of thought you would be. And once we learned that, the care and treatment for John improved vastly. The tips that one family yeah. or one patient, one person who has a similar issue can share. So John's been in touch with, I think, three. That's amazing. Out of the 15 in the world. She's a young girl turned two or two and a half. There's another girl in New York that's, I think, 20. So we were able to pass the Mepilex secret to both of them. But there's another Beautiful. secret, too. The cheap Band-Aids from Target. Tell us about those. It's the plastic ones, right? Not the, like, the waterproof ones. Mm -hmm. But the plastic ones, they may not stick quite as well. They definitely don't stick as well as Mepilex. But if you need a Band-Aid, those generic Target Band-Aids are the least riskiest bandages. For, for pulling up the skin when you remove them. Right. Yes. Yeah, you have to use more of them because they keep coming off. <laughs> I discovered that just out of frugality one day. Great tip. Great tip. And that's what we keep in the house for him. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking too that this piece on how you learned that where there had been an outreach to you and your wife early on, you weren't ready for that. Nope. And we do also know as it relates to the trauma experience, that the brain purposefully shuts the parts of the body and brain down to purely focus on what is right in front of you. And part of the emotional brain 
brings in like hope. In fact, for people who have not experienced and developed a reservoir of hope, that can get dashed pretty early on. But for those who do have some, but anyway, this sort of hope of not me, not our family, we're going to get better. We're only going to be here for a week or a couple of weeks or a month. And then others wanting to say, oh, here's somebody who has your condition whom you could talk with. It's like, no, that's not going to right. be us. So many families experience that as well in the very early days. And it's very natural. That goes back to that, the meniscus on the glass. And like, you can only handle yes. so much. And yes, that hope is a real factor. And I was guilty of projecting into the future. You know, when you have a, a, a little child, they go from a crib to like a toddler's bed that's really low to the ground, right? And then there's the big moment when they, you put them in a regular bed. The big moment, even with the bars, with on, the the bars side. on the side. <laughs> Correct. In that little toddler bed, which is like what? Four inches above the ground? Mm -hmm. John fell off of that and broke his arm. By the way, that was the first time I experienced an unusually heavy amount of questioning by authorities thinking, because that's a typical injury that a child has when a parent pulls on the arm. So they're questioning you for child abuse. Yeah, exactly. And when I used to take John out in public and he's all bruised, I often wonder why I never got stopped more frequently. And then I, it dawned upon me that if I was really abusing my child, I wouldn't take them out in public like this. <laughs> so uh, the, the pay it back, the pay it forward, there's another little story that I want to share because I think this speaks to the support that everybody who's going through trauma needs. You need the insurance, the reassurance of that things are, can be okay or can be managed, right? Maybe they're not okay because, you know, it's traumatic. So there was this two and a half year old girl that had dematospraxis and she was diagnosed by this lab in Seattle. And, and we were asked, would we allow them to give this family our information? And I said, of course. So we established a relationship and then we had a long Zoom, you know, initial conversation, passed on the Mepilex and the Target tip. And then a couple months later, she had, the girl had a little bit of a, a tear on her buttocks. And it was ironic that it was on her buttocks because the very first tear that John had at home was on his buttocks when we were trying to change his diaper and, mm -hmm. and it made like a little skin flap, but you could see the fat tissue underneath it. I don't want to be too graphic, mm. but it was really small. It was like, it may be a half inch, maybe less. We totally freaked out. We went to the hospital and the doctor, he never saw an EDS patient, put on a little bit of glue and a Steri-Strip covered with the Band-Aid and we went home. And from that moment on, I became more aggressive with wound care. And my mother-in-law, who's also a nurse, really encouraged me to do my own first aid on skin tears and knowing when to go to the ER or not. So I became really an expert at Steri-Strip and gluing. When this family called me, you know, they called me in a little bit of a panic. Oh my God, she has this little skin tear. I said, okay, here's what you do. You don't need Dermabon, which is basically, it's just super glue. I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's like cement for the skin. And it's very expensive. And our doctor, our plastic surgeon said, you don't need Dermabon. It's just a sterile version of super glue. If you clean the wound, you could just use super glue. Don't use Gorilla Glue, use super glue. The, the old 
you know, classic version. And so I told him, this is what you do. You know, if it's a nice clean tear, which it was, you kind of squeeze it, you glue it, you could put a steri strip over it and put a bandaid on it and you keep it clean and don't bathe for a couple of days. And it's like, oh my God, not only did I save them the headache of going to an ER, I probably saved them $500. Yes, that's right. Or from being stitched and so forth. It reflects this support that even though this was exactly what I went through, I've had to give people advice on to help calm them down and deal with a traumatic experience that is not exactly the same thing. I just can help them deal with their emotions at the time, right? And that's trauma support. It's trauma support. And now you also have the whole training from a relational perspective as a neutral, as a mediator. The only difference there is that I still want to offer a solution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to have you sit on your hands (laughs) and tell it to tip, a medical tip. (laughs) Well, you may not want to do this, but this is what I've done. (laughs) That's exactly right. Right. Never forcing, only offering. But in that case, I said, this is what you should do. (laughs) Well, you know, Steve, I think this takes us into... You know, here you are now with all these life experiences, this broad swath of life experience and finding yourself in patient advocacy. How does it work if we could take a few minutes to hear from you for someone reaching out to you? And then with our time that we have left, I would love to hear from you some tips that you might share for how our listeners might deal with insurance companies. Okay. Well, to reach me, it's very easy. It's Metis, M-E-T-I-S, which is the Greek god of perseverance, truth, and assistance, helpfulness, or something like that. I forget. I had a friend come up with that. It's also the name of a native group of people in Canada, but they pronounce it Matisse. <laughs> so M-E-T-I-S advocacy.com. And you can reach me there. That's very easy to do. There's a lot of tips and tricks that you can easily find by Googling, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple right off the bat. One is oftentimes people go to their insurance company and call and try to get an estimate if something is covered, right? And every single time the insurance company will say, oh yeah, you're covered for this, but we really don't know how much it's going to cost until we actually get the claim filed. And then they often find out they're not covered for something. The tip is you can't rely on insurance companies, either their cost calculator online or a phone call to give you 100% assurance that something is covered. It will help, but it's up to the patient to doubly check that the doctor's in network, the hospital or facility is in network, because you could have a facility in network, but the doctor isn't or vice versa. And there are some consumer laws, especially like in Arizona, where I got rid of a $50,000 medical bill from a hospital because the law stated that if they were out of network, they had to provide a written acknowledgement and estimate. And they didn't do that. Mm. That's where my expertise comes into play. But you can't go back to the insurance company and said, well, the nurse said it was covered, right? They don't know. Or I thought the doctor was, is in network and he recommended a hospital the hospital's out of network. That happens all the time. And the insurance company says, well, you should have checked. So the patient has to check. The other tip is also 
kind of related to a lot of surprise bills that I end up reviewing is that, you know, most insurance plans have an out-of-network benefit. And they might say, okay, your out-of-network deductible is $5,000. And after that, you're covered at whatever percentage. But the fine print on that is the out-of-network deductible applies only to the approved charges that the insurance company has for a certain procedure. So if you go to a doctor, like I had a client went to a needed knee surgery and went to a doctor and the doctor is out of network and they knew that and they had a $5,000 out of network deductible. But when the bill came, they still owed like $20,000 or something. And that's because from the insurance perspective, the fee for this procedure should have been, I'm making this up, you know, $5,000 and that would apply to the deductible, and then they would apply a benefit. But the doctor's charging $50,000. He can do that because he's out of network. He's not under any contractual obligation. When you see a doctor that's in network, you'll see, oh, they charge $1,500 for this service, but the contractual fee was $400, and you're responsible for 20% of the $400. Those are for in-network. Out of network, it's never the raw charge. It's always what the insurance company deems appropriate, which is always way less. Always way less. And we're really just in hearing this, it might be dizzying for a number of people, but also just the incredible pressure on both sides of the equation, both for the medical providers and for the patients who are receiving the care to really try and just figure all this out. And I have one other really useful tip. We all know that if it's an emergent situation, you can go to any ER, your insurance company will have benefits. Whatever they might be, they'll have benefits. You might have a copay, you might owe a percentage, and you don't have to worry about being covered in the ER. But if you get admitted to that hospital, that hospital may be out of network. So it's really important to do your research when you don't need it, to find out what local hospitals near you are in network. So if you need to go to the ER, you go to that hospital because if they admit you, you know that you're in an in-network hospital. No surprises. Right. And to know that there might be a point of transportation elsewhere at that very critical juncture, in particular, if there's expertise that's needed. I experienced that um, directly when in LA, the hospital that was closest and had actually a really good ER. Well, the ER was covered, but the hospital at that time I was under Blue Shield couldn't negotiate a renewal with Blue Shield. So the hospital wasn't covered for me, but the ER was. You know, if I thought the injury or illness was serious enough that there might be an admission, I would go to another ER. So, Steve, I think we might be winding up, but with regard to your role to maybe share as part of the wraparound team in the first 30 days for spinal cord injured families in particular with blink of an eye. Would you like to share a bit about what it is that you're offering to those families? And then, of course, later on, if they need help with their medical bills and financials, um, and that would go for any family who needs help beyond that. I think a patient advocate can be really useful in those first days, weeks of an injury to help make sure that the patient and or their families' interests, needs, desires are being properly communicated in a way that the recipient, the providers, the facilities 
can appreciate. One of the things I've learned in my practice is just because a patient or their caregiver wants something doesn't mean they're going to get it. We do have to face the financial realities. Like, you know, if you feel like you really need to be in the hospital two extra days, sorry, you know, it's the reason why I don't drive a Rolls Royce. You know, I, I drive a more modest car is because I can't afford it. And hospitals are bound by a lot of rules and regulations and limited space as well. So the patient may really think they want something and need something. And it takes sometimes a third-party advocate to not only communicate their desires in a way that could be most likely received, but also vice versa, to convey the hospital practitioner's viewpoint as to why. It's a reality check. You know, no one wants to be told, yeah, you want this, but you're not getting it. Beautiful. Yeah, our, our blink of an eye navigators are helping families by empowering them to use the right lexicon, to use the right language so that the other uh, party in the negotiation can understand what the request is and why. And it's all about, you know, being heard because a lot of times you may want something, you may think you want something or need something and you ask for it, but you don't explain why, right? You just like, obviously I need an extra two days. Look at this. I but you don't explain why. I had to do that with John several times. In, in fact, in that injury in Washington, they wanted to discharge him a day early, but he was unable to be mobile and they didn't have the proper wheelchair and assisted devices. So it's not just that I just wanted him to be there so I, I could sleep at night. You had to convey the reason. And the same thing is true of the healthcare providers. They often will say, no, but the navigator is there to try and dig deeper. Yes, and help the families to do the digging exactly. deep um, with the right yeah. skill set. Yeah, it's so important, especially at all those transitional times uh, when oftentimes hospitals, they're not charged with knowing what's going to happen once people leave their doors, but the family knows. Um, and if things are not in place and the liability that that can create and bringing somebody back in and creating a situation that's much more tenuous than the one that they're looking at at that moment, really important conversations to exactly. have. Exactly. And oftentimes yeah. you just need that third party to help facilitate that. Very much so. Well, Steve Korn, we can't thank you enough for being part of the Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning Series. Is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with as something to consider or know? Two things, two brief things. And this was tough for me because I mentioned at the onset that I'm a problem solver, right? And I feel independent and empowered generally. But shortly after John was born, I was on the school board for my temple and I had a close relationship with the senior rabbi, Rabbi Jim. One night after a board meeting, I'm in the halls of the temple and the junior rabbi, who I knew, we were kind of friendly, but not as close. And he walked up and said, Steve, I know you're working with Rabbi Jim. I, I don't want to poke my nose in, but I just want to give you one bit of advice. I said, sure, anything hit me. And, and he goes, let people help. And I got to say, mm -hmm. it was difficult for me, right? And I didn't fully integrate that until John had that Halloween accident. And I was in the middle of trying to entertain offers to sell my company. <laughs> I was just completely, completely overwhelmed. 
I was doing the primary ADLs for my son and I, I discovered CareBridge. I realized I needed help. My wife needed help, not just bringing over food, right? Everyone can bring over food. Um, you just have to meter it so you don't get overwhelmed. But like, for example, I needed help cleaning my pool. And normally I would say, I'll get to it. I'll get to it is the point of pride to take care of my pool. But I let people help. And what I learned is, as they say in Judaism, it's a mitzvah to let people help. It's a mitzvah. But it took me, what was that, 17 years to learn that lesson. Mm-hmm. And the tools like Caring Bridge, and there's some other tools that help organize people. So you don't have, sometimes it's a burden, right? People say, I want to come over, I want to do this. And you have to like plan it and schedule it. So using technology like this to take that burden off. And I'll give you one tip for people who want to help. The worst thing you can say is, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Because that now shifts the burden onto the person that can't handle another thing to figure out how you can help. When you want to help, try to be specific. Offer specific ideas. Can I get your dry cleaning? Can I do grocery shopping? Can I wash your car? Can I take the kids to school? Whatever. Be specific. And then the recipient allow people to help. That's right. It's a beautiful way for us to end because we can all be on a growth edge of being able to receive a little bit more fully when others are so willing to give. And when we are the ones wanting to give, make it easy. And also within our lane of what we are capable of doing so that it's true reciprocity, relational reciprocity on both sides. Right. You wouldn't ask a fish to climb a tree. That's, a, by the way, a reference to a famous Einstein quote. You can look that up. <laughs> I love that quote. But we can certainly ask someone to do the driving or to water the plants or to pick up the dry cleaning or the mail or to sort the mail or to pick up the children from school or to take them to practice, but quite specifically in ways that someone just has to say that as opposed to having to think it up. It's so important about that, not adding an extra drop to the overwhelm. Right. You got to keep that meniscus solid. (laughs) And and allow it to go down at its own natural pace because it will with integration over time. Absolutely, it will. Thank you, Steve Korn. You're very welcome. So glad to share this with you. And so happy that you're part of the Blink of an Eye wraparound team. It's marvelous. Thank you. Take care. From his early days as a pre-med student at Cornell University to his serendipitous encounter with songwriting, Steve Korn's story reminds us of the power of passion and the courage to pursue our true calling and to have the discernment of knowing when a new path is placed before us to walk. Steve's journey teaches us that the path to a meaningful life is rarely a straight one. It's often multiple paths woven together with twists, turns, unexpected detours until we find a place of convergence of all. That is the path of integration. When faced with trauma and crisis, we can all find the courage to reimagine our futures and discover our new passion and walk a new path and maybe 
even give back to others along the way. Don't forget to subscribe to Blink of an Eye podcast for future episodes featuring wise experts on trauma healing and remarkable individuals living with spinal cord injury in the Dear Louise series. Until next time, keep welcoming new insights and noticing shifts in your life, embracing the connection between awareness, integration, and feeling alive and connected. Begin again and again. Sending love. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.